Philippians chapter 2. This is Palm Sunday, which opens the week containing Jesus entering Jerusalem, Jesus teaching in the temple, Jesus observing the Passover with his disciples, and then being betrayed, put on trial, actually a number of trials, and then being crucified and buried. Next week opens with resurrection. It's Easter Sunday. This week is the heart of the Christian faith. Yet it is a roller coaster of sorts, from the heights of his entry into Jerusalem to the depths of death on the cross. Though his entry was humble, many have tried to change this, um, the problem is we tend to see the events as taking place as Jesus enters Jerusalem. But if you read the text carefully, you'll find that's not the case, that the throwing down of palm branches and of cloaks happened outside the city of Jerusalem. It didn't happen in Jerusalem. Matthew's account, I think, would point more toward a modest entry, not a triumphal entry. And Luke points to something else altogether, that the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. And without being cynical, could we ask, were they hoping for some more miracles? For all this, we really, in many ways, are not prepared for what comes later in the week, and that is humiliation. And what we find in this week is, in fact, a journey from humility to humiliation. That's what I'd like to, us to look at today. But let's begin with humility. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11, are considered by some to have been in some form a hymn, perhaps one of the earliest hymns of the church. If you have the NIV or any of the newer English translations, you'll notice that it is written in verse form as opposed to prose. Our study will focus on verses 6, 7, and 8, which point to his humility. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature, or the very form of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." There are at least two parts to these verses. The first is the emptying of himself, and the second is his obedience. One author, in writing on this passage, says, In displaying the mind of Christ, Paul begins with one of those sublime sentences whose essential intent and meaning seem clear as can be, yet whose part are full of mystery and wonder. And the reasoning, I think, is simple enough. We may not recognize this, but if you think about it, I think it becomes clear. Paul begins in verses 6 and 7, speaking of Christ and the things which could not be observed by the human eye. In contrast to his earthly ministry, obedience to death, even death on a cross, that the people could see. But in fact, what we find is his existence prior to coming here on earth. His existence as God, he demonstrated what equality with God meant. There's a number of questions come up about this passage. First of all, 
Why does Paul say in the form of God? And if you look at the NIV, that's uh, the note. It has nature, but it says in the form. Um, why didn't he just say as God? Being, in, being as God. Well, first of all, let's begin with the word being. Our tendency would be the natural inclination to think that, in fact, this comes from the verb to be, that he was being, he had being. But in fact, it comes from the word to exist. So it describes that which a person is in his or her essence, who they are, something that cannot be changed. It describes that part of a person which in any circumstance remains the same, a person's essence. So what we find here is Jesus existing in the form of God. What about the word form? What what is this all about Or versus nature? There are two words that are used in the New Testament when translating into English the word form. The first is morphe, which is an essential form that does not change. This is who a person is and it does not change. So in Romans 8.29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness or the form of his son. That's morphe. The other word is schema, which speaks of the outward form, which changes from time to time, circumstance to circumstance. So any human being always has the quality, if you wish, morphe being a human being, but the schema changes. So person is a baby, an infant, a toddler, uh, preteen, teenager, young adult, adult, older adult. But nothing can take away what is a person's morphe, if you wish. This is important. Our deficiencies, our possible diseases, our mental deterioration, our disfigurement, does not take away from the fact that we are human beings. We are human. And I think in today's society, this is something we need to shout from the rooftops and to, be, to remind people that someone cannot lose the quality of being human. So when Paul writes of Christ, his being, his existence, he uses the word morphe in verse number six. Never changes, he is still God. He always was God, being in the form of God. And it is this Christ who then became a man. There's another question. Why does Paul, what does Paul mean when he says something to be grasped? The King James has robbery, that he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The verb points to seizing, stealing, taking something away. Why would someone do such a thing? For one's own personal advantage, one's personal gain. And Paul tells the Philippians, and us, if we will listen, that part of being in the form of God is seen in the fact that Christ did not think he needed to take advantage of, being, of having equality with God. He was God. It wasn't something for him to grab. It's something that he had in his essence. He did not consider his God-likeness, if you wish, something that he should grasp for his own advantage. Christ was essentially, in essence, God. He had existence as God. This could not be taken away. 
It's the word morphe, something that is who he is, cannot be taken away. And this is important because there are some who deny the deity of Christ, who say that Jesus was in fact not God, and they use this verse. They say that Jesus never claimed to be God, that he never tried to grasp a deity to say, I am God, um, that he really was only a human being, and, and we can emulate him as a human being. Yes, we can emulate him as a human being, but in fact, he was God. In his schema, yes, we can emulate him. In his morphe, in his being God, we cannot. And the reality is that his humility must be seen in the reality of his godness, his being in the form of God. Because it is in this context that he now empties himself. What does that mean? The NIV says he made himself nothing. The King James has he made himself of no reputation. God is not an acquisitive being, grasping and seizing, but always self-giving for the sake of others. And this is the word that Paul uses here. It is the word that means to remove things from a container until the container is empty. That's why some translations have, he emptied himself. It is pouring something out until there is nothing left. But how did Christ empty himself? What does this mean? Well, he took on the form of a servant. He entered our history not as a Lord, but in fact as a servant. A person without advantages, without rights, without privileges. And I think at this point, we just need to stop and realize, stop and think a moment, and pause, say how difficult this is. It's, it's really beyond our understanding. How could God become man, making himself man, and yet still be God? I think at this point, we should remember what Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.16. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. What did Christ give up? He emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? Paul writes, the Corinthians, yet he was rich. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. In John, we read in his prayer to the Father, the glory I had with you before the world began. We also see that he gave up his independent authority. By myself, I can do nothing, Jesus said. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. He took on the form of a servant, someone who is commanded by someone else, someone who must obey someone else's commands. So, then a little Greek here, morphe, schema, took on the form of a servant. What would you say that is, schema or morphe? I think the tendency would be to say schema, but it, in fact, it's morphe. That is, Jesus wasn't play acting. Yeah, I'll, I'll pretend to be a servant for a little bit. But in fact, he put on the role. He took on, in essence, being a servant. And then another question, why in human likeness rather not just in his humanity? Again, this is where Paul shifts to us and he, he uses the word schema. 
because schema points to a form that changes. So Jesus' point was in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He was born. He was an infant. He had a childhood. He suffered thirst and hunger and tiredness. His circumstances changed, and we see changes in him as well. In the same way that we are not always the same as we get older, we see this in Jesus as well. But his humanity did not diminish the fact that he was God. It was a means for being a servant, for being emptied, for becoming obedient. I think that Paul using the word schema here allows for a certain ambiguity, that in fact Jesus was similar in many ways to our humanity and yet dissimilar in other ways. But the similarity lies in his humanity. The dissimilarity is he was God. We will never be God, but he was in fact God. The Westminster Confession, dated 1646, writes, Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, very God and very man, yet one Christ. Paul's trying to make a point here. The emptying, the becoming a servant, the becoming a man, was in fact Jesus humbling himself. Here is his humility. I said there were two parts to this. One was the emptying, the other is obedience. This is in verse number eight. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And what we find in this verse is a parallel for what we see in verses six and seven. There's a pattern here that Christ's present mode of existence as a man, he empties himself and humbles himself. He takes on the form of a servant and became obedient and his becoming a man led to his death on the cross. The major difference between verse 8 and verses 6 and 7 is that verses 6 and 7, I think, are full of mysteries, and they use, Paul uses metaphors. It's what happens, if you wish, behind the scenes, before the world was created, something we can't know fully. But verse 8 is what happened that could be observed by his fellow Jews during that time. In his deity, he emptied himself. In his humanity, he was obedient. In Hebrews chapter 5, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. He was a servant. He took on the form of a servant. He was obedient even to death on a cross. And that death meant humiliation. And so in this week, Holy Week, we travel from humility that we see in Jesus emptying himself to his humiliation. This is the week of the cross, as many would argue. And yet it has been argued rightly, I think, that the cross in many ways is not religious at all. The crucifixion marks out the essential distinction between the Christian faith and religion. More on this in a few moments. We have seen that, in fact, our Christian faith is not a religion. 
The question has often been asked, why did Jesus have to die? And I would submit that this is the wrong question to ask. A better question is, why was Jesus crucified? That is, the emphasis should not be primarily on his death or just on his death, but on the manner of his death. Jesus died a slave's death. That's what Cicero said about crucifixion. The death of a nobody in Roman eyes. And no doubt over the years you've heard in graphic detail as people have described the suffering of Jesus as he was crucified. But have you ever thought about this? Have you ever noticed that none of the four Gospels, the four evangelists, none of them tell us anything whatever about Jesus' physical suffering? We sort of fill in the blank there with his suffering and go into detail and talk about how he suffered. I think this is extraordinary. The omission is something that we need to consider. The reality is the writers of the Gospels don't want us to focus on his physical pain. They want us to look somewhere else. Sadly, oftentimes we fail to do so. You see, if his death is merely a death, if that's how we see it, it's construed, Jesus died, it's a death. Even if we say it was a painful, tortured death, then we will miss the crucial point of the crucifixion. One writer put it very well, crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity. The last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment. Degradation was the whole point. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran pastor who ultimately was executed by Hitler's men, wrote, the meaning of the cross lies not only in physical suffering, but especially in rejection and shame. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, that's the law that's given again, the Jews were given very specific instructions about physical punishment. If the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall make him lie down and have him flogged in his presence with the number of lashes his crime deserves. But he must not give him more than 40 lashes. If he is flogged more than that, your brother will be degraded in your eyes. There is to be punishment, but not degradation. Bonhoeffer continued, Christ is weak and powerless in the world. And this is, that is precisely the way, the only way in which he is with us and helps us. Matthew 8.17 makes it quite clear that Christ helps us not by virtue of his omnipotence, but by virtue of his weakness and suffering. That is a reversal of what the religious man expects from God. Man is summoned to share in God's suffering at the hands of a godless world. What is the Matthew 8.17 passage that Bonhoeffer refers to? When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. That is, he took upon himself our weaknesses. We should not ask, why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to be crucified? 
One author has commented to the humanism of antiquity, the crucified Christ was an embarrassment. Crucifixion was regarded as the most degrading kind of punishment. Thus, Roman humanism always felt that the religion of the cross to be unesthetic, unrespectable, and perverse. It was regarded as an offense against good manners to speak of this hideous death for slaves in the presence of respectable people. It was so degrading that you didn't even talk about it. It's something you didn't talk about. And yet this is the death that Jesus experienced. Another has observed, we may think that it was easier for early Christians to understand the cross than it is for us. And perhaps that is so. But at the same time, they had even more reason to hide their faces from it than we do, because they knew what it entailed. They had to face, as we do not today, the contempt of their contemporaries who knew only too well what an object of disgust a crucifixion was. The logical thing for Christians, for early Christians, would have been to glide past the passion as quickly as possible, portraying it as an unfortunate but incidental episode in the way to the resurrection. That is why the Christians, that is what the Christians in Corinth wanted to do. And what did Paul write to the Corinthians? For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Why? Because it's a degrading death, it's degradation, it is foolishness to those who are perishing. But Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. I said earlier that the cross is not religious. One writer says, from the very first, the Christian faith was distinguished from the religions which surrounded it by its worship of the crucified Christ. In Israelites' understanding, someone executed in this way was rejected by his people, cursed amongst the people of God by the God of the law, and excluded from the covenant of life. Cursed be everyone that hangs on a tree, we read in Deuteronomy 21. Anyone who, condemned by the law as a blasphemer, suffers a death is accursed, who suffers such a death is accursed and excluded from the circle of the living and from fellowship with God. To the Jews and to the Romans, this death was degradation itself. It was complete humiliation. That was its purpose. Isaiah foresaw this centuries before. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You may be wondering at this point if I've gone off track, if I'm making too much of the degradation, the humiliation, because we're more familiar with hearing about his suffering. 
Well, listen to what Matthew writes. This is in Matthew 27. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. It is the manner of his death that we come to see the humiliation. See, the Jews executed people by stoning, like Stephen. And the Romans also did beheading. There are other forms of execution. It is crucifixion. It is the complete humiliation of Jesus that the Jews wanted and that the Romans achieved. A week that begins by demonstrating his humility. He comes in riding on a donkey. By the way, I'm always reminded, not always, but I I think of the passage before that where Jesus sends in his disciples to get a donkey and says, if the person tells you this is what you're supposed to say. And so they go and get the donkey. The men say, what are you doing? What are you doing? And they say, well, the Lord has need of the donkey. I've been struck by that. If he's the Lord, he doesn't need anything. He has everything that he wants. But it is in his humility that we hear him instruct the disciples, tell them that the Lord has need of him. This week begins with his humility, and it ends with his humiliation, death by crucifixion. The last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment in which degradation is the whole point. What does this mean for us? What are we to take away from this? We've been asking ourselves the question the past few weeks, where do we go from here? And I would argue that to begin to answer that, we have to go back to Philippians chapter 2 and not begin at verse number 6, but at the beginning of the chapter. Philippians 2 verse 1 If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. See, this chapter begins with Paul making an appeal to the Philippians that they would have unity. And it's based on a Trinitarian foundation. Being united with Christ, comfort from the love of God the Father, and fellowship with the Spirit. And then included in this is any tenderness and compassion. These are for the brothers and sisters, those who are part of the body of Christ. And Paul gives four commands, two negative, two positive. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. You should look not only to your own interest. And then two positive, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. You should look to the interests of others. And yet for all of this, what Paul says in these first verses, he in fact 
presents a more powerful argument in that he gives us the example of Christ. As one commentator put it, when all else fails, read the manual, read the directions. And what Paul does in verses 6 through 8 is point to the manual. He points to the Lord Jesus. Here is the ultimate paradigm of a genuine Christian mindset, that of humility. For some of us, at least, the King James is what we think of when we read this verse. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Uh, Many of us now use the NIV. And what we read in the NIV, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. I think I prefer the King James. The NIV speaks of an attitude, but the King James speaks of a mindset. This is the mind that you are supposed to have. And not simply as individuals, there is that, but as the body of Christ, as a congregation, as the people of God. The English Standard Version, the ESV, I think is even better than the King James. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It would seem strange, wouldn't it, if Paul, in trying to get the Philippians to become united, would then address them as individuals. You, 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 person A, you should have the mind of Christ, and you, person B, you should have the mind of Christ. It is, in fact, the whole community that is to have the mind of Christ. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now it begins to make sense. The call is to the community, to the people of God to follow the example of the Lord Jesus. The mind of Christ is seen in his humility. He made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The people of God are to have the mind of Christ seen in his humility seen and lived out in his time here on earth. But let me ask you, when you think of the church in this country today, does the word humility come to mind? I didn't think so. Some would object, but Damon, we have the truth. We have the answers. We need to go out and yell in people's faces. We have the truth. Jesus is the truth, and yet we see him in his earthly ministry with humility. Sadly, the church is lacking that. And because we lack humility, I think it follows that we lack obedience. We're not servants. See, someone who is humble is a servant, and they are obedient to the will of God. And it opens the possibility to humiliation. Jesus humbled himself and being humbled as a servant and being obedient, he was obedient even to death on a cross, the most degrading form of execution possible. You might ask, okay, Damon, I'll be humble. I will... will Take on the form of a servant. I will look at the interests, look out for the interests of others. I will be obedient. But what about the humiliation? What about the humiliation? Will we experience it? I don't know. 
I honestly don't know. Some have begun to say that in this country we're going to experience persecution. Maybe. I don't know. We do know that brothers and sisters of ours today are being degraded, are being humiliated in other countries for their faith. Humiliation isn't our part of the story. Okay, that's not our part of the equation. Humility is. Okay, humility is what we are to do. Humiliation is what others will do to us if they choose. So let's let's set that aside. I suspect that humiliation will take a different form than what we expect. It may, in fact, be more like what happened to Peter when he was warming himself around the fire. And a servant girl said, you're one of those guys. And Peter denied it. And for us, for people to say, really, you believe that stuff? And we start to Because we don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to be humiliated. The story of the church, not always, but much of it has been written in humiliation. Those who were martyred for their faith. By the way, PBS has a wonderful documentary on Flannery O'Connor. Guy and I got to watch it this week, a devout Christian. And she often, or early in her life, spoke of martyrdom. It's weird, but I think I would rather be a martyr than be humiliated, you know? Kill me for the Christian faith. Just don't make fun of me. Don't embarrass me in front of my colleagues and my friends. And then last night we watched the story of Corrie ten Boom how that when she was put in a concentration camp, they made her strip naked. She's like, I can't do that. It's so humiliating. And then she remembered what happened to Jesus, how he was stripped naked and crucified. And she was able to do it. We may face persecution. We may face humiliation. That's not our problem. The Lord will take care of that, okay? He has us in his hands. He knows what we need to go through. Our part of the equation is humility, being servants, and being obedient. And as we try to answer the question, where do we go from here? Let's start with humility. Let's start with being servants and being obedient. Let's pray together. Our Father, as human beings, we're often distracted. We miss the main point. We look at the peripheral things. And without question, Jesus suffered mightily on the cross, physically. But more than that, the the intent was to humiliate him, to degrade him, to mock him. Here is one who humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, and was obedient even to death on a cross. As we ask ourselves as a church, where do we go from here? May we see that it begins with humility, with becoming servants to one another, and being obedient no matter the cost. I suspect that we are soft 
we're not prepared for persecution, but perhaps we should think more in terms of humiliation, of being embarrassed. By your grace, give us the strength to stand up for the truth and to do so in humility. He who is the way, the truth, and the life humbled himself. Can we do anything less? Our Father, as we go through this week, we're reminded of all that Jesus went through. First of all, may our hearts be filled with gratitude. How he willingly laid down his life. But may we also learn from his example. One who humbled himself and was obedient. I thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. We, we pray for this friend of Rory's, Liz, who's in the hospital. Um, give the doctors wisdom as to, so they can diagnose accurately what is wrong with her and be able to give her what she needs. Pray for Tom and Ann as they travel this week. You would give them safety in a time of rest. And for Ruth, you've given her another year. As we walk through the world in this coming week, may we have a sense of your presence. Above all, may we have a sense of your love. I pray this through Jesus, he who gave his life for us. And in his name, amen.